Kia ora e te no mai hai to mai. Good evening and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Tonight, how should our universities balance free speech with the concerns of students who think it leads to hate? Plus, the government made reducing child poverty an absolute priority. But two years in, the Children's Commissioner has a terse assessment of some of their work so far. Thus far, inadequate. In fact, I'd go further. Weak, supine, passive. The model's got to change. Australia is facing a potentially cataclysmic fire season. Could we face disaster too? Fire season 2016-17 through the Port Hills fires and major fires in the North Island. We saw the greatest number of homes lost in New Zealand in over 100 years. And a starter for 10. How long does it take for the Earth to go around the sun? In a new survey, only half of Kiwi adults got that right. So what does that say about our education system? But we begin with the ongoing debate over the limits to free speech in New Zealand. Controversial Canadian feminist Megan Murphy has made an international following for criticising elements of the transgender rights movement. She was set to speak at Massey University, but after some students complained that Murphy's message made transgender people feel unsafe, the Vice-Chancellor at Massey banned the appearance, citing health and safety. Now, in the last few hours, Megan Murphy has fronted an audience in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. Who is the person who decides whose speech is okay and whose speech isn't okay? Like, and that's not to say that I don't think there's speech that's harmful. Of course there's speech that's incredibly harmful, but unfortunately you kind of have to um, let that out into the open. And, and I think that we should have learned from history that the suppression of speech isn't really good for anyone, particularly not marginalized people. I mean, how would any of our political movements and civil rights movements have succeeded without free speech? Massey University has now introduced a new free speech policy which says the university will consider the possible risks posed by outside speakers, including mental harm to students. The university's communications manager said no senior management, including the vice-chancellor, would be interviewed by Q&A tonight. But ACT leader David Seymour and Auckland University student Anisha Sankar are here to consider the free speech on-campus debate. Kia ora David, I'll start with you. Should Megan Murphy have been allowed to speak at Massey and why? Look, she absolutely should have been for a couple of reasons. One is that whether or not you agree with what she has to say, uh, she has an interesting point and something that I think deserves uh, to be debated. Secondly, a university is a place that taxpayers fund precisely so that difficult ideas and issues can be debated and resolved. And the idea that Massey is now making it a priority uh, not to harm anybody's feelings in having those debates uh, is a real problem for two reasons. First of all, uh, as you just heard from Egan Murphy, who, who gets to be the person who decides what you're allowed to say? And second of all, if the goal is that we want people uh, to feel better about themselves, uh, we're not going to do that by suppressing anything that may upset them. We've actually got to have open debate. Ultimately, as politics becomes more polarised around the world, uh, we need to regain the ability to have a civil conversation and we lose that when mm. we bring out the censors. Anisha, should Megan Murphy have been allowed to speak at Massey University? No, I think that the decision that Massey made to de-platform um, this like, instance of what I see as hate speech is quite brave and I would hope that other universities follow in those footsteps. Why was it brave? I mean, I think that the um, feelings, the, f the feeling of feeling, the feeling unsafe is a result of like the risk and threat of very real harm and very material harm. Um, and trans people are some of our most 
at-risk communities and mm. I think that we have an obligation that universities have an obligation to protect marginalized communities mm. from from hate speech. David, in this instance, it was the decision by the Vice-Chancellor, but it was a decision informed by a petition signed by 6,000 people mm. saying they were concerned about the safety of trans students on campus. Of course, free speech mm. is considered a right, but there are other rights as well, right? Mm. We have human rights not to be, not to be harassed, not to be uh, threatened in any way, not to be intimidated. Yeah, but there, there are limitations on free speech. You can't incite violence. Uh, you can't threaten violence. Uh, but those are objective tests that are in place for very good reason. Now, 6,000 people, frankly, can be wrong. Uh, and if we allow the mob to suppress people who may have good ideas, who may have interesting ideas, uh, that makes us a society that's less able to solve its problems. And one of the interesting things about this is that traditionally, it's actually been the political left who have been the users and defenders of free speech. Uh, it's been women's lib, it's been mana motohake, uh, it's been the union movement, it's been anti-war protesters, mm. it's been gay rights. Those are the people who have actually used and benefited from free speech and been strong defenders. Now you have the political left uh, saying actually we want the ability not only to say we disagree with somebody but mm. to physically stop them from saying it. Okay. And I think that's wrong. Anisha, why can't people who, who oppose Megan Murphy's message simply choose not to go to her speech? I mean, in the case of Megan Murphy and the kind of like rise of anti-trans hate speech that we're seeing, it's also led to things like the hindrance of um, trans rights, like progress towards trans equality. So the um, Birth, Death and Marriages Act, the mm. amendment proposed to that to allow people to self-identify their own gender identity, that's been deferred as a result of these kinds of um, of, of this wave of anti-trans. But I suppose, is that, is, that a, is that a political belief that people might have? So they might uh, oppose hearing her speak because they don't agree with her politics rather than necessarily feeling directly threatened by hateful speech or someone inciting violence. I mean, I think it's, it's part of the momentum of this kind of rhetoric mm. that people are opposing. They're not necessarily opposing an instance of like an individual... Um, espousing these views, but they're uh, they're seeing the direct correlation mm. between this momentum of anti-trans hate speech and the material consequences and violence that it um, has. David, what's hate speech? Well, hate speech is when you say something that is designed to harm someone's sense of self-worth or their uh, identity being denigrated. And I have to say that you know, as mm. somebody who actually gets quite a lot of it. Um, I find it very distasteful, um, but I'd rather people were allowed to say it for a number of reasons. One is that if you're going to have a censor who has the power mm. to silence, it's very difficult to design the laws around that censor that stop it being abused. But two, if, if there's going to be hateful people out there, I'd much rather they speak up and identify themselves so we can have the debate than force them underground. But Anisha, is your point that the collective weight of these conversations leads to a normalisation and that that normalisation leads to a greater threat to these, to these minorities, rather than anything yeah. specific that is being said in a speech itself, it's the collective yeah. weight of this messaging. Yeah, I mean, we don't, like, these acts of hate speech aren't coming in an ahistorical or apolitical context. They're coming in a context mm. in which power is distributed inequitably, um, and so the weight of certain kinds of speech have more violent consequences and effects than any kind of speech mm. that 
um, might be offensive. I think it's valuable to consider the situation at Auckland University. Let's have a quick look at the pictures from earlier this year, of course. Uh, we saw various stickers and posters mm -hmm. put up around the university, which many people interpreted as carrying a white supremacist message. David, why did Auckland University's reticence in taking action against mm -hmm. students promoting white supremacist ideas, why did you support that? Well, for all the reasons I've just given you, first of all, if we're going to have people out there with those sorts of views, mm. and I just consider them nut bars, um, I'd much rather they spoke up and we had the debate and show why those ideas are wrong, rather than let them fester underground. But second of all, I think it's probably now the third time I've said it, mm. um, is that people like Anisha need to be cautious because it may be handy now to have a censor who will suppress the views mm. that you don't like. Sometimes I go on Twitter and think I wish I could silence all those people. Mm. Um, but actually, history has shown that free speech has led us to a lighter path. It's actually allowed us to resolve differences. Mm. It's advanced liberalism and increased human rights. So I disagree with Anisha's assertion that allowing speech is going to take us to a darker place. Is That's this, not is, what's happened is in this a, Is this a threat, Anisha? You know, is, is it possible that, say, supporters of Megan Murphy could, could take that deplatforming mm. reasoning and then use that against you? Could they say, you know, could they say, well, you know, um, people say that we're not true feminists, for example, that causes us mental harm, that causes us distress, we feel threatened by your messaging. I mean, again, it's like um, a question of power. It's like a question of um, who has power in this instance and who doesn't. Mm. If we're thinking about Megan Murphy um, or we're thinking about these white supremacist groups, the victims of these different instances of speech are... Um, Māori Pacifica Muslim students or their trans students, um, these are people who don't have mm. the same access to power that people like M Megan Murphy have. And that's what I'm sure some people will be screaming at the television now, David, when you compare yourself to people in these positions. Oh, well, I don't know why. That's a, a certain amount of prejudice on the part of those people. Um, so, you would agree, you know, though, that there has been a power, a power imbalance for, for some time between yeah. people of colour and white people... Yeah elected politicians, mm. earning relatively good salaries. Yeah. But I think that that's not the issue. The issue is in what sort of society, with what sort of laws around speech, mm. are we more likely uh, to make progress to a more understanding, equitable society? You know, we've got a real problem with political polarisation mm. around the world where we can't have a civil conversation. Bringing out the census is not going to help that and it's not going to get rid of the kinds of prejudices. If anything, it'll force it so, underground and put us in a worse position. So aside from anyone directly saying, let's harm, physically harm someone, mm. is there anyone who should be banned from speaking? What, what if there was a person who wanted to speak at a university extolling the virtues of paedophilia, for example? Well, that actually is uh, inciting harm. It's inciting somebody to commit a crime, which well, is paedophilia. Well, what so, if there's, what if so there's actually, no direct incitement, though? What if it's someone saying this is this is only natural and it should be it should be enjoyed or something like that, rather than saying, "Come now, everyone, let's go and offend." I really don't see how you're going to say that um, without actually mm. encouraging people to commit a crime. Um, but you know, people should think carefully about this because, mm. oh, and um, you know, the the department of, of the faculty of Arts. I mean, people actually like mm. to be able to test ideas like that, and they don't want someone one day to come along and say, you can't write that, you can't say that, because someone finds it offensive. Finally, and we have to go after this, Anisha, we've seen Massey University introduce its free speech policy. Would you like to see other universities around New Zealand do something similar? Yeah, I would love to see other universities um, follow in, in the footsteps of Massey University. 
um, especially with the white supremacist stuff that's happening at Auckland University. We know that um, like the Anti-Defamation League statistics tell us that in 2017, white supremacist groups, the recruitment of white supremacist groups spiked 200%. Mm. And I'm really worried um, and feel unsafe about the possibility of that happening on our campus because of a refusal to de-platform or to uh, white supremacist groups or to take down their stickers and mm. flyers recruiting. Kia ora kōrua. Thank you so much for your time and for a Thank thoughtful you. conversation. I'm sure we will continue it in the coming months. Coming up on Q&A, pop quiz. Was Winston Churchill a real person or a fictional character? You may be surprised by how many Kiwis get that question wrong. But does that mean we have a problem with our education system? Plus, we'll meet the woman who's gone from Palmerston North to one of the world's most powerful policy jobs. And then later, Australia is facing a fire season of unprecedented intensity. Are we being too complacent about the fire risk here? Lessons that were talked about but perhaps haven't been followed through on, um, which does make the community, our community, nervous. Hoki mai anō, welcome back. Now we asked, how long for the Earth to orbit the Sun? It's the question that stumped nearly half of the Kiwi adults surveyed. Of course, 365 days is the right answer, or if you want to get really clever, 365.25 days, which is why we need a leap year every four years. We're going to talk to the New Zealand Initiative about why this kind of knowledge matters soon. But in the meantime, here's another question for you. Can you name the seven continents? And can you guess how many people couldn't? Now, when she became Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern identified reducing child poverty as a key priority for her government. So much so, she made herself the minister responsible. Since then, the government has introduced a reduction plan and specific targets. But critics say the coalition is yet to deliver the transformation it promised. Children's Commissioner Andrew Beecroft addressed the Child Poverty Action Group Summit this morning and I asked him, in the last three years as Commissioner, has he seen an improvement? No, it's got no worse but it's got no better. And really the best way of explaining it is that 70% of our children do well, some well leadingly well, 20% struggle in and out of advantage and 10% are in significant chronic generational disadvantage. Now that 10%, two Eden Parks full worth of under 18 year olds, that I guess gives it context. Mm. That group hasn't moved, it's a significant challenge and we know that about 10% of children are in families where there is no work to be found, work can't be found, mm. they are doing it incredibly tough, the stats haven't changed. Mind you, it's worth saying the most recent stats we have go back to June 2018. Mm. So we're 18 months out of date. The government has set some, some reasonably specific targets when it comes to reducing child poverty in New Zealand. They promised, of course, to make reducing child poverty a priority of their government. But there are a number of indicators I wanted to put to you that suggest things are getting worse. For example, the waitlist for public housing has um, passed a record 14,000 people now. The Salvation Army uh, will be housing 50% more people this Christmas than last year. So when you consider this government two years in, has the action matched the rhetoric? not demonstrably at this stage. Mind you, the model, the forecast is 70 to 80,000 children lifted out of poverty, but it's a treasury model. We don't have it demonstrated yet. And at the coalface, we here too 
it's very tough. I mean, don't forget some of the stats we have, in fact, all of them are based on households. There are children operating and living with families mm. outside of houses, doing it tough, transient, and in cars and the like. But at the sharp end, it is very tough. You identified housing. That's a key issue. Most beneficiaries are now paying more than 50% of their income towards housing. It's doubled in 20 years. The lack of housing is a crucial issue that drives child poverty. The Welfare Working Group recommended immediately substantially raising benefits in New Zealand. The government hasn't done that. When you talk about housing, let's consider some of the big structural dilemmas they have faced. The capital gains tax was, of course, rejected by this government. When you consider those two things, what does it tell you? Well, so far we haven't seen the significant transformative structural change. Only that will do, Jack. In 1991, benefits were slashed. They stayed relatively stable. Incomes rose. I mean, the market economy did deliver. Wages increased by about two-thirds. GDP doubled. But it wasn't a trickle-down experience for those at the bottom level. Benefits need to be significantly increased. The spend for that could be $2 billion plus. A 20% increase minimum, 40% increase maximum. Then index to wages, so they keep pace with wages. But at the moment, we have benefits unhinged from wages and a lot of make-up to do. So the short answer to your question is we haven't seen the transformative structural change that we need. There's been talk, but we haven't seen it yet demonstrated. Does it just come down to money? Is that, is that it? Do, do these poorest families just need more money? In the first instance, yes. That's what we mean about structural change. And you know, Jack, we did it in the 90s for the over-65s. There was a cross-party community commitment to do well by our elderly, and we did. They're one of the most advantaged groups in the world. That's terrific. If we had the will and the willingness to spend on the most disadvantaged children, we could do exactly the same. Our economy at the moment is imbalanced. We do so well for our elderly, and so we should. We do relatively badly for the poor end of our children. There's a, a ratio of, of about six to one in terms of mm. disadvantage from youth to elderly. No other country's got that sort of structural imbalance. So in the first instance, yes, inescapably and fundamentally, it gets down to spending. And we've got the money. It's in the piggy bank. It's a rainy day. Now's the time to spend it on so children. why don't politicians spend it? <laughs> and frankly, Jack, I think that is a question that's going to have to challenge politicians. If we talk transformation, if we talk change in structure, action has to follow words, spending has to follow. There's no escape from that. The government points to a range of things that it says are contributing to improving our child poverty statistics in New Zealand. Things like the government covering school donations uh, for lower decile schools as evidence of its commitment. But when you look at something like that, surely you would say families that are living in poverty are probably not making the voluntary school donations as it is, right? Mm, you're right. Incremental change won't do it. If I've learnt anything in three years, what the previous government did, I mean, there were some steps, it wasn't big enough. And I know people might say, well, I'm preaching a gospel of expensive change. I am. We, 
we, we won't be able to get by with year-by-year year annual short-term increases. It needs something consistent and transformative that goes for the next 10 years. That's just inescapable. What do you make of the government's response to the Welfare Working Group's recommendations? Thus far, inadequate. In fact, I'd go further. Weak, supine, passive. The model's got to change. Something fundamentally is flawed with the current system. The Welfare Advisory Group has made over 40 recommendations. We've spent a huge amount. We've got to deliver on those recommendations. We can't fiddle, as it were, while Rome burns, while 100,000 children remain in disadvantage. Change and action is urgently required. There will be people watching this, though, who say that it still comes down to parental responsibility, that for many of these children, filling Eden Park they need better parenting and they need parents to be more responsible. What do you say to yeah. that? Easy to say from my armchair and Karori and to lob shells of criticism to those who are doing it tough. From what I see and speaking to children in particular from those families, there's almost a toxic stress of accumulated disadvantage and risk that makes it sometimes really tough to make good decisions. And we know from a great study in London from the School of Economics at the turn of the century, when the Blair government increased benefits significantly, almost all of it showed up in supermarket spending and household spending. The point being that if we give money to parents who are struggling, who can't get work, who have children, it'll be spent most times on their children. And I'm, I'm sure of that, and we need to trust that money given to parents will be well spent. But of course it's not just a matter of mm. benefit level increase. We could be doing much more in terms of in-kind benefit, free dental and mental, uh, free dental medical care to age 18, free school lunches for every New Zealand child, free transport. There's a lot that we could do that would go straight to children as well. I sense you're frustrated, Andrew. I sense, you, I sense, you know, you have worked in this space, you've been in your current role for three years, but, but through your work in the justice system, you have been in this space for a long time now. You must be getting annoyed that things aren't improving. You know, I left the role that I had as Principal Youth Court Judge because all that I saw in that job pointed back to earlier intervention, child mm. disadvantage and poverty. Health, educational achievement, criminal justice, all roads lead back to that issue amongst other things. So yes, I want to see a different. I'm impatient for change. I've had three years out of five. I'm really keen to see structural transformative change in the next two years. February next year, we'll see the stats for the first time. We'll get a good bead then on mm. what's actually happening. But you're right, we can't just uh, tinker around the edges with a little change here, a little change there fundamental structural transformative change is now required. If the government doesn't make that change, will it achieve its targets in the years to come? No, it won't. And in a sense, this government has set its sail and its cloth on reducing child poverty. That's terrific, because we're better as a country than we've done so far. We can undo 30 years of neglect within 10 years. But if we don't, the government will have failed on its own words and its own policy and as Children's Commissioner I'd be failing in my duty if I didn't say that. That's Andrew Beecroft. Hey, you're still pondering those continents. Let me put you out of your misery. 
Africa, Antarctica, Asia, Australia, North America, South America and Europe are the seven continents. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page. Email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Another hot summer looms. We'll look at our fire risk after the break. And did the earliest humans live at the same time as the dinosaurs? No, this is not the aftermath of the meteor that wiped them out. But would you believe 30% of us didn't get that answer right? That's next. Kia ora te whana. welcome back. Australia is into its second week of intense fires in which lives and property have been lost. Many say the ferocity and scale of the outbreak is unprecedented. New Zealand, of course, has much lower temperatures and higher rainfall than Australia, but experts say Aotearoa cannot be complacent. The nature of our fires is changing here too. Here's Fina Owen. Bushfires are just a reality of Australian life, but the infernos we witnessed last week were on a new level. Right now, around 120 fires are burning in Queensland, Western Australia and New South Wales. Temperatures are predicted to soar tomorrow. There's a tough week ahead of us and we've still got some around the corner. And the fact these fires have not broken out in the summer fire season reinforces climate change projections. These things are aligned uh, in terms of climate change. They're aligned to what we expect to see as our climate continues to fall. And as it gets uh, picked up by the fire, uh, that will actually get carried by the heated air as it rises. In the Christchurch Reserve, senior fire scientist Grant Pearce is showing us how eucalyptus bark acts as fire missiles, a common catalyst in Australian fires. But despite our different vegetation here and higher rainfall, Kiwis, he claims, are in danger of being too complacent about New Zealand's fire risk. What we're going to see is our fire season's getting longer. And we're already seeing evidence of that in other parts of the world, like Australia, where these fires are occurring so early in the season. The fire season 2016-17, through the Port Hills fires and major fires in the North Island, we saw the greatest number of homes lost in New Zealand in over 100 years. So uh, fires of the scale of the Port Hills or Pigeon Valley events, we're seeing thousands of people having to be evacuated. It uh, burnt down through here, right round all our dog kennels here and finished up right at this fence line. Pigeon Valley resident Tim King, who also happens to be the local mayor, fled his home along with his family and pets in February. The fire came within five metres of his house. The Pigeon Valley fire was the country's biggest since 1955. Now Tim King is closely following the behaviour of the Australian fires. I think the biggest concern is how early they're happening, um, several months ahead of what is usually their highest fire season, so uh, that's a concern for us. Joe Kinley over on the Port Hills above Christchurch was also evacuated during the fire there nearly three years ago. This broom would go up now. You know, it would go off in the winter time. She and the residents on her road are really concerned that the long grass, broom and gorse has been allowed to spread over the hills. Lessons that were talked about but perhaps haven't been followed through on, um, which does make the community, our community, nervous. 
What sets the Port Hills fire apart was its proximity to a city. The number of fires in New Zealand is not increasing, but fire scientist Grant Pearce says the size of the fires are and they're more extreme in nature. So fires that are throwing embers ahead of the, uh, the flame front, fires that are developing as crown fires as opposed to running through the surface beneath the trees, fires that are exhibiting fire tornadoes or fire whirls, these um, rotating flames uh, that create uh, huge um, difficulty for firefighters to suppress these fires. So I think that's what we're likely to see is more cases of those extreme fires uh, here in New Zealand. But are we planning for that? Residents who lost their homes or had to leave them during the Port Hills fire have watched 300 houses go up in the last two years in a nearby subdivision. If there's another big fire, what things have the council required uh, that developer to put in place to enable um, them to withstand or stop fire from taking over their properties? We already plan very well for other natural hazards. So fire, I guess, has been missed to date. So I think there's lots of scope uh, to improve district planning controls around where we build, what we build houses from. Well, I think that we're new at this and um, we probably have only really had a few years of getting used to this idea. And whether that's government-led or whether that's um, council-led, I don't know. Meteorologists are forecasting a dry summer for the east coast of both islands, but property owners in Tasman, around Pigeon Valley, are nervous about the dry months ahead there. Certainly talking to a lot of people who are affected in the Redwood Valley area, um, they are you know, concerned and I'm sure if there's another dry summer that'll, that will be reflected again. This fire researcher considers our newly amalgamated fire service has never been more efficient, but property owners have to do their bit. Just not expecting that the fire truck is going to turn up and it's going to save the day. This, it won't happen to me. Uh, at some time in the future it could happen to you and you need to be prepared. Fina Owen reporting there. Right, you have had time to Google our last question. No, dinosaurs did not exist at the same time as the first humans, but an astonishing number of Kiwi adults, 30%, either got that wrong or weren't sure when they were surveyed by the New Zealand Initiative. Research fellow Briar Lipson is in our Wellington studio this evening. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Tēnā koe. What does the survey tell us? So um, we think citizenship and civic participation and democracy relies on a population having broad general knowledge. Um, all those kinds of debates that you have, brilliant debates you have on programmes like this about child poverty, free speech, vaccinations, climate change, use of plastics, all rely on us being able to draw on knowledge of science and geography and history and of the world. Um, and so we looked around to try and find out what Kiwi's general knowledge was like so um, mm. we could work out whether most people in New Zealand are able to engage with those debates. And we, we came up with a random sample of, of 13 questions that we asked a representative sample of Kiwis. And there's a kind of mixed bag of outcomes. So in terms of um, Kiwis' knowledge of um, whether Winston Churchill was a real or fictional character, you actually outperformed mm. um, British teenagers who... Um, 
who um, um, I think around 80% of them got that question right, whereas in New Zealand, um, 90% were successful in, in identifying that he is a real character. Mm. Um, and you knew the capital of Australia was Canberra, um, and you knew that 70% um, of you knew that dinosaurs were not around at the same time as human beings. But actually, we also identified some quite concerning gaps. So, for example... Um, the question about the continents was only answered correctly by 44% of adult mm. New Zealanders. Um, and um, the question about the Earth circling the sun by 53, um, um, 53%. Mm, yeah, it's, not, and it's not pretty, is it? I mean, who's, who's to blame for this, Briar? Are you suggesting there are holes in our education system, that a, that a competency-based education system is selling us short? That's certainly our concern. And we were so pleased um, by the government's recent announcement mm. that... Um, New Zealand history will finally become a compulsory part of the school curriculum for primary and secondary school. But having made that great leap, why not go further? Why not look at what knowledge of science, world history, geography, art, culture, mm. language, all Kiwis should be exposed to in school? It's interesting, though, to, to consider NCEA and the current New Zealand curriculum, which came in in 2007, because by my reckoning, going through your numbers young people outperformed older New Zealanders. So, for example, um, how long does it take for the Earth to go around the sun? Well, 62% of people between the age of 18 and 30 got that right. I'm not saying that's an impressive number, but 62%, whereas just 38% of people over the age of 61 got that right. Um, did the earliest humans live at the same time as dinosaurs? A third of Kiwis over the age of 46 got that wrong whereas 23% of people between 18 and 30 got that wrong. So, so if anything, these, suggest that, that these numbers suggest that NCEA is better equipping younger people for these fairly obvious-seeming general knowledge questions. You are right, absolutely, in your analysis, only on a couple of questions about Treaty of Waitangi um, and um, more historical questions mm. did um, older um, mm. age groups outperform younger age groups. Unfortunately, of course, in a short snapshot survey of 13 questions, we cannot come up with any scientific conclusions. There are no winners here, Briar, I can tell you that much. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're they're um, not particularly impressive. But, but when, for competencies, and I mean, this might sound absurd, but... Is it more important to know the year in which the Treaty of Waitangi was signed or more important to know how to Google it? Um, so there will obviously be um, disagreement about the nature of the questions. Mm. We could never in this short survey come up with the, the perfect list and I hope there's something in there for everybody. And, and you're right, just knowing a date is, is a long way from understanding the, the, the full discipline and the concepts and ways of creating knowledge within a subject like history. There is so much more to it. But we just want to start the conversation and... Mm. and we want Kiwis to realise that our, our New Zealand curriculum, as the government has identified, has, has a huge problem in that we don't have any core canon of knowledge that we have got together and debated and decided that all Kiwis should know. I, and that puts us, that sets us apart internationally. In well, most countries, there is that core expectation mm, of knowledge. I mean, under NCA, of course, the, the, you, you have to achieve certain numbers of numeracy and literacy credits in order to, to, to achieve an NCA. Um, qualification. I, I know that the OECD lists three core competencies as its educational priorities. But what do you lose if, if you if you tell teachers that actually we want to put some of this competency-based learning to one side and focus on facts and that sort of thing? How do you go about deciding what's included and what isn't? 
So um, there is a really strong seductive move in mm. education. It's not just in New Zealand, it's um, around the world to move away from teaching knowledge and towards teaching 21st century skills. We're called, they called um, the three C's, um, critical thinking, communication and collaboration. I um, mean, it's a really seductive idea that nowadays technology has answered our need. We don't need to do all that boring learning of facts. We can just mm. Google it and then we can apply our critical thinking skills. But of course, um, although those are the things we want children to be able to do ultimately the route to critical thinking is knowledge mm. you know it, when I open the bonnet of my car when something's gone wrong and try and problem solve and think critically mm. it's hopeless because I have no knowledge of, mm. of, of car engines so we have to have background knowledge in order to think critically and solve problems. Brian one last question 13 questions to a thousand Kiwis did you get any wrong? Oh well that would be telling Jack. <laughs> <laughs> hey there's no shame because looking at these numbers, a few people got more than uh, one or two wrong. Thank you so much for your time. We will put all of the questions and your analysis up on our Facebook page. Thank you. <clears throat> 13 out of 13, of course. Up next, she's one of the most powerful New Zealanders on the global stage, although many of us have never heard of her. Annette Dixon talks about her role lifting countries out of poverty. New Zealand, when I grew up, wasn't, wasn't um, a rich country but it was doing the right things by giving kids a great start in life, and that's a model for other countries. Gilda, welcome back. Now, we've discussed our own problems with poverty tonight, but my next guest is a Kiwi who works to fix the immense challenge of global inequality. According to the UN, nearly 800 million people still live below the international poverty line. That's living on around $3 a day. As the Vice President of Human Development for the World Bank, Annette Dixon is one of the most powerful New Zealanders on the international stage. Lifting countries out of severe poverty is her job. Countries um, grow their way out of poverty, you know, basically when they have good economic policies and good social policies. When a country can grow its economy faster than its population is growing and when it's redistributing the benefits of that growth to the population, then you get broad-based development and countries will develop. And we see that around the world. There's been some huge success stories around the world, most of them in Asia, of course, of countries that have done that very successfully. The countries that are stuck uh, and are really struggling are those that have got very fast-growing populations, they've got huge environmental challenges, and many of them uh, are really facing a lot of fragility and a lot of conflict. When you look at the success stories, are there particular examples that stand out from your experience? Well, you, you take uh, Bangladesh. You know, I, I look at Bangladesh because I'm old enough to remember when Bangladesh became independent. And the New Zealand Prime Minister at the time actually was the first foreign leader to visit the new independent Bangladesh. It was a very poor country. It had back-to-back um, -back famines. I remember as a kid raising money to send to Bangladesh. Um, and over successive political uh, cycles in Bangladesh, Governments have been focused on reducing poverty. One of the things they've done really well is get kids to school, and particularly girls to school, and women into jobs. And we know that that really helps to reduce poverty because when, when women get educated and when they earn income, the whole family benefits from that. And so you see the intergenerational impacts of that actually starting to happen. So that, that's a great success story. Still obviously got some way to go, but 
but a huge achievement considering where it came from. And what can the World Bank do in a country such as Bangladesh? Well, we, we spend a lot of time with leaders trying to encourage them to put in place good policies. Mm. You know, we know that countries develop when they have good policies and good institutions, so they use resources well, um, when their policies are designed to actually benefit their people. Um, so a lot of what we do is technical support, uh, policy advice, uh, and then our money at the margin makes a difference, but that's only when countries are willing to take the right steps. Are you optimistic about the direction of global leadership at the moment? We have seen moves away from big multilateral institutions such as the World Bank by the likes of the US President. Well, I think uh, I, I'm optimistic because when you work in development, you have to be. Uh, but, but you also see countries doing the right things and coming, you know, even after long periods of, of very little development, start, things change. Mm. Um, and so uh, I, think, I think, you know, we, I do see progress. But at the same time, I think right now in the world, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think global growth is slowing and that's really bad for developing countries because they need all the help that they can get from the global economy. Um, uh, and of course, many countries are dealing now with a lot of displacement from conflict. There are more people displaced in the world now than there have been since the end of World War II. And, and, and more countries are, are facing extreme weather events, which are really challenging as well. So there is, a, there is a lot of cause for concern, but at the same time, I do see countries actually coming out of um, periods of, of you know, long periods of no development, actually starting to take the right steps. Is New Zealand doing enough to promote that sort of improvement? Well, New Zealand, you know, brings a lot to the rest of the world. It always has. It's a great role model for other countries. And that was, uh, you know, what I was, um, uh, you know, I always try to tell my story about growing up in New Zealand because I think it's tremendously helpful for other countries to know that, mm. you know, New Zealand, when I grew up, wasn't, wasn't um, a rich country, but it was doing the right things by giving kids a great start in life. And that's a model for other countries. New Zealand is also very active in multilateral institutions and of course it plays a huge role in the Pacific, uh, which is really important because the Pacific countries have a long way to go uh, in helping their populations to achieve their full potential. So that's really important for New Zealand and it's really important for the Pacific countries. I, the World Bank is negotiating its International Development Association Fund at the moment. New Zealand has contributed to that fund for some time now. I believe $25 million was the last contribution. Should we be giving more? You compare that figure with Scandinavian countries, for example, all of whom contribute roughly 10 times as much as New Zealand, if not more, to the fund? Well, New Zealand policymakers are a better place to look at priorities, but I can tell you it's great value for New Zealand's money. Um, the funding that New Zealand puts into the International Development Association works threefold. We, we can make that go, th every dollar that New Zealand puts in, we can actually use three dollars because of the way 
our finances are structured. Um, and in the Pacific, we've really scaled up. So we're working really closely with New Zealand mm. on, on its Pacific reset policy. We've, uh, I think, increased our, our financing going into the Pacific countries sixfold since 2011. So it's really helpful for New Zealand, I think, to actually see the International Development Association as a partner in the poorest countries in the world, including in the Pacific Islands. That's Annette Dixon, Vice President of Human Development at the World Bank. Stick around, we'll have your feedback next. Hey, welcome back to your feedback. And many of you had views on the debate over limits to free speech on university campuses. Dawn de Oliveira posted, It's all about intent. If your intent is to offend, victimise, marginalise and bully, then it's hate speech. And this from Lynn Hussey, I feel unsafe seems to be the go-to excuse for shutting down free speech. Well, guess what? The world is not safe and never will be 100% safe. Thank you for that uplifting message. Kumutu Te Hōtaka tonight is up next. That's us for this week. Thanks for watching. And nāmi hikia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hei te rāwiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.